Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And um, we are happy and we are free because Jesus is alive, He's risen. Um, Thank you so much for, for coming in the snow on Easter uh, to celebrate with us. I uh, was not anticipating that this morning and uh, really glad that you came even in spite of that. Um, if you would, take the clipboards that are in the racks in the back of the pews and just pass those down and um, jot down the information that you would feel comfortable sharing with us this morning. We'd love to know that you are here and um, be able to follow up with you and care for you in that way. Um, as you're doing that, you'll notice that behind the, the sheets, there's cards. Those are prayer cards. We would love as a pastoral team to be able to pray for you throughout the week. So if there's something going on in your life um, that you'd love to have us praying with you about, please fill those out. You can drop those cards uh, after the service in the offering boxes on the back of the walls. Also, during communion later on in the service, um, we'll have people available to pray with you here this morning. So back near the sound booth, um, there's a sign that says prayer, and we'll have some people there who'd love to pray with you this morning uh, as well. Um, yeah. So I was thinking about Easter this morning. I was uh, thinking about uh, this week a song that uh, recently has kind of exploded onto the pop charts. And it's a song by a relatively unknown uh, Danish pop rock group called Lucas Graham. And uh, the song Seven Years really put them on the international scene. It's, it's currently the number two song in the world on Spotify with about 2.8 million daily listens. Um, it tops charts and the UK and New Zealand and Australia, um, and currently here in the US, it's the number three song on the Billboard Top 100 chart. And I think the reason the song has such kind of broad appeal around the globe is that it taps into a deep sense of longing that we all have for our lives to be meaningful, um, to have relationships that last, and perhaps most of all, to know that we're not going to be alone. So we're going to have the lyrics on the screen for you to kind of follow along with. If you've never read the lyrics, read them as as John and the band are singing. So let's listen to the song together and think about the, the words. At each stage of life, whether seven years old, 11, 30, 60 years old, we long for meaning. We long for a relationship to, to know that it, it matters, that our life at each one of those stages, that it really matters. And this song reminds me of a, a poignant moment in Arthur Miller's play, Uh, After the fall, and Arthur Miller's character, Quentin, says this. He says, for many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, how smart, and then what a good lover, and then a good father, and finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where, where God knows that, that I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, the pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is, of course, another way of saying despair. The pointless litigation before an empty bench. What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus makes an audacious claim. Jesus claims that not only is the bench not empty, but that he is the one on it, that Jesus is the one on the bench. And that's both our greatest problem and our only hope. 
Jesus is the one on the bench. That's our greatest problem and our only hope. So listen to this account from Matthew's gospel of Jesus' life. It's in Matthew chapter 9. And if you want to follow along, there's Bibles in the pews. And it's found on page 813 and 14 um, there. Matthew chapter 9, again, pages in the pew Bible are 813 and 14. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible that of your own at your home, would love for you to take one of those home with you as a gift uh, from us. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So listen to these words from Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, What do you think? Why do you think evil thoughts in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowds saw it, they were afraid, they marveled. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What we see in this passage is that what we think our problem is, is almost never actually the problem. Uh, What we think we need is a friend or a spouse or to have a successful career or children who will adore us and come visit us when we're old. But Jesus always has something more in mind. Jesus always has something more in mind. As a church, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew, the writer of this book, was a friend of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to so much of of what happened in Jesus' lives, and he wrote down life, and he wrote down um, the things that he saw shortly after they happened to show the world who Jesus claimed to be. And this morning, we're in chapter 9, and in case you're wondering, I I do know that we read in chapter 9, and and that wasn't the story of Jesus rising from the dead. I I just didn't read the wrong passage. I know where we're at in the Gospel. Um, And this story, so it takes place in Matthew's gospel a ways before we get to the resurrection in Matthew's story. And yet this is a resurrection story. Um, it's, it's our resurrection story. As we look at the story, we're going to center on three things this morning. We're going to center on the problem. It's worse than you think. The solution, it feels too good to be true. And the resurrection, that it accomplishes both. So the problem, the solution, and the resurrection. So first, the problem. It's worse than you think. That's what Jesus is telling here in this passage. That's, how's that for a happy Easter thought this morning? Uh, whatever you think your problem is this morning, it's actually worse uh, than that. That's what Jesus is telling us. Whatever you think, if Jesus could just fix this one thing in my life, then everything would be better. Jesus says, actually, it's, it's worse. It's worse than that. Um, And this is one of the craziest stories in the New Testament. Three out of the four uh, gospel writers include it. Um, The gospels are these accounts of Jesus' life. Three of the four gospels we have in the New Testament include this story. And that in that first reading, not only is it kind of a bizarre story, it's also almost insulting, especially to this man who's paralyzed and his friends. Because these guys whose friend is paralyzed, um, which by the way meant that this guy, this paralyzed guy, was considered worthless by most people, 
um, and also that he would have been desperately poor. I mean, there was no sort of social security disability program in the Roman Empire. And so these guys, when they hear that Jesus is going to be in town, that he's going to be nearby, they think this is our chance to help our friend. We've heard that this guy can heal people. We've got to get him here. This is our chance. And Matthew really gives us an abridged version of this story. Mark and Luke, two of the other gospel writers, both tell us his friends couldn't get past the crowd. So Jesus is in this house, and there's all these crowds that are filled the house and around the house. And these guys realize that there is no way they're going to be able to push their way through Jesus, especially not trying to carry a guy who can't walk. If you were at the Royals Parade this, this fall, and you can imagine that crowd in front of Union Station to be like saying, I'm just going to make my walk right up to the front of the stage. This is not going to happen. That's the situation these guys were in. And so they go to the roof of the house, and they make a hole in it. They, they tear open this kind of thatch mud roof, and they lower their friend down through the hole, right in the middle of Jesus giving what I can only imagine was a, a better sermon than this one. Uh, right there in the middle, this guy comes down through the roof. I mean, that's how badly these friends wanted their friend to have their, uh, his legs healed. But Matthew, he skips over all of those details. He doesn't even tell us any of that because he wants to get to the most shocking part of the story. Yes, we, we haven't even gotten to the truly shocking part of the story. Jesus takes one look at this paralyzed man, and for the paralytic, what must have probably felt like the disappointment of a lifetime, Jesus says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Which, it, this just confuses everybody in the moment. I mean, imagine the guy who can't walk. I mean, it's got to be thinking, well, that's great, Jesus. Uh, thanks. Uh, but if I wanted forgiveness, I, I would have gone to the temple. I, I know that's, that's where we do that. The, the legs, Jesus. What about my legs? That's why I'm here. But you see, the problem, it's worse than he thinks. It's worse than he thinks. And Jesus knows our biggest problem isn't our, our problems, all these myriad little problems. <laughs> they seem big to us, but these, all these other problems. And Jesus doesn't make light of those problems. He doesn't make light of this guy's problems. But our biggest problem, Jesus says, is in here. There's a scene in the recent Steve Jobs film that was based on the book by Walter Isaacson that captures this so well. Um, Steve Jobs, as you know, I mean, he changed the world in so many ways. He changed the way we think about technology. And even if you don't own any Apple products, you have been shaped by Steve Jobs. Um, he was also known as being a pretty terrible human being to work with, to be with, uh, to be in any kind of relationship with. Um, he was a genius, but that was accompanied by this sort of arrogance and borderline narcissism and just kind of being downright mean often. And in this film about his life, really kind of at the climax of the film, he's arguing with his daughter whose relationship he's denied for years. And she asks him, why? Why have you been such a lousy person? Why have you been such a lousy dad? And his response, well, let's take a look. I'm poorly made which is, of course, brilliant writing, given Job's obsession with things being perfectly made, perfectly designed. And there's actually been whole articles written about that line from the film. But me, Job says, he says, I, I'm, I'm a clunky, sort of virus-ridden PC. I'm poorly made. 
Now, I'd rephrase that. I believe that God has made us perfectly, but that we have rebelled, and now we are deeply broken. And that rebellion, that desire to be independent from God, that's what the Bible calls sin. An author in New York Times columnist, David Brooks, who isn't a Christian, by the way, argues in his book, The Road to Character, that that sin is a vital piece of mental furniture that we have as a culture of kind of abandoned, but that we desperately need. And sin, Brooks writes, is our perverse tendency to to just totally mess things up. He uses a little stronger language than I can use in a Sunday morning. Um, To favor the short term over the long term, the lower over the higher, Sin, he says, when it's committed over and over again, hardens into a loyalty to a lower love. The danger of sin, in other words, is that it feeds on itself. Small moral compromises on Monday make you more likely to commit bigger moral compromises on Tuesday. That's our problem. That's the news about what's, what's worse. That's where the real problem lies. That's the problem underneath all the other problems, the fact that we choose ourselves over God and others all the time, which ultimately leads to death. Now, it also means we have a whole host of other problems, right? We have relationship problems and money problems and health problems. But underneath all those surface problems is this root problem of sin. So imagine if Jesus had only healed this guy's legs, I mean, that'd be, that would be great for as long as it lasted. I mean, it might fix a few things for a while, for a few decades even. But ultimately, the end of his life, when he faces death, what then? So Jesus offers a solution, one that seems too good to be true, and that's forgiveness. And this is the most shocking part of the story. This is, this is far more shocking than the roof being ripped open. It's why Matthew doesn't even bother to mention that in his story. Matthew just kind of just, that's all background details for him. He wants to get to the real shocking part of the story. And that's that Jesus is making the claim that he forgave this guy's sin. And the people are stunned, and some of them are even outraged, especially the religious leaders. Because how in the world can Jesus say that? Because think about it. Who do you have the right to forgive? Well, someone who's wronged you. I I can't say to someone who's wronged you, I forgive you on their behalf. It, It just doesn't work like that. And Jesus has never met this guy before. And Jesus doesn't just say, I forgive you for what you've done to me. He says, your sins comprehensively, everything you've ever done wrong to anyone, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is claiming that every sin this man has ever done was ultimately offense against him, Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the one on the bench. I'm the one judge on the bench evaluating your life. And everybody instantly knows what Jesus is claiming in making that statement. He's claiming that he is God. He's making himself out to be God because only God can give that kind of comprehensive forgiveness. We can forgive one another. Only God can say, I forgive you in that sort of comprehensive way. Not even the priests in the Old Testament forgave sins. They helped administer the temple, and this was the way that the Jews sought God's forgiveness through the ways that he prescribed, but they didn't forgive sins. That was God's job alone, and they know it, and they know what Jesus is claiming. 
And honestly, if you're here this morning and you don't believe that Jesus was God, then this claim that he makes here should outrage you as well. I mean, where does Jesus get off? How can he say this? Your sins are forgiven. If he's not God, he doesn't have the right to say that. And this is why you, you can't ultimately just call Jesus a, a good teacher, because good teachers don't say stuff like that. If Jesus isn't God, this claim, it's the height of arrogance. Which is why the scribes and the religious leaders start whispering to one another that this man is he's blaspheming. In this case, blasphemy is insulting God by making yourself out to be God. Now, it's true. Anyone can blasphemously claim to forgive sins without anything to back it up. And Jesus knows what the religious leaders are thinking. And so he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, they marveled, they were stunned. They glorify God, who had given such authority to men. And the question here, as we finish this part of the story, though, is did this really happen? Did Jesus actually take someone who was paralyzed, who couldn't walk, and give them that ability back? Can we trust this account? Can we trust what Matthew has written down for us? Well, a couple quick thoughts here on that. First of all, even the most critical New Testament scholars would say that Jesus was known for, had a reputation for being a miracle worker or a healer. Uh, second, um, Matthew is recording eyewitness accounts just merely 30, 40 years after these events happened, which means that at least some of the eyewitnesses are still alive when Matthew wrote. So he couldn't just make stuff up here. There were people around who could say, no, 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 it didn't happen that way. I mean, think about what happened 30 years ago in Kansas City. It was 1985. There was a big sporting event uh, in the history of our city that took place then, right? I mean, the Royals won their first World Series. And so today, I couldn't write a book and claim that, actually, no, the, the Cardinals won that World Series. There's too many eyewitnesses. So I bet some of them here in this room would say, no, I was there. I saw it happen. The Royals won. That was just 30 years ago. Matthew's writing these things down, same kind of time frame. He can't just make stuff up. He's got eyewitnesses who could contradict. There are far too many eyewitnesses around to just make things up. Now, I know those couple of quick thoughts certainly don't address all of the doubts or questions you may have, not only about this text, but even more comprehensively about claims of Christianity and Christian faith. And so, um, if you want to explore more, we're actually going to be hosting a conversation, Matt and Allie Perman, um, for those who are interested in considering questions and doubts about the Christian faith. And it actually starts this Thursday, um, and all the details for that are in the note sheet that you were handing on the way in. So if you know someone or if you yourself are thinking, I'm, I'm interested, I think I'm interested in Christianity, but I have some, some doubts, some questions, would love for you to join in um, and explore with that group. But remember, this miracle of healing that Jesus does, it, it's the minor note in the story. It's not the main thing. The main thing 
is forgiveness. Because forgiveness is the solution to the problem. Because basically what Jesus is saying in this text is, is that forgiveness of sins is the key to fixing everything. That Jesus is one day going to restore everything to wholeness and perfectness and beauty and all of that, but it starts with the forgiveness of sins. That's at the root. Because you see, what you propose as the key solution to a problem reveals what you think the problem is. Right, so if you, if you look around at our world today and you think that the problem is, is education, you'll, you'll start more schools or better schools. If you think that sort of nurturing or upbringing is the problem, then you'll invest in parental training. If, if you think a lack of freedom is the main problem, then you'll work to repeal laws and regulations. If you think there's, there's too much freedom, then you'll invest in a solution of legislation and, and law enforcement. The main problem is mental illness or poor childhood experiences. You'll invest in psychiatry and counseling. If the main problem is poverty, then working to get more money into the hands of those who are poor. And you get the point, right? Your solutions, your solutions reveal what you think the problem is. Your solutions reveal what you think the problem is. And for Jesus, forgiveness is his solution because for him, as we saw, sin is the problem. There's a concept in uh, the business world in the lean manufacturing movement called the five whys. If you've done some study in business, you've probably heard of this, the five whys. It's part of the lean manufacturing process. And basically, the, the idea is that if you have a problem, you need to ask the question at least Five times you need to ask why. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Um, so, for example, Charles Duhigg, who wrote The Power of Habit and then recently published a book on productivity, talks about he, how he and his family were trying to start this habit of eating dinner together as a family, but they, they kept failing at it, and they couldn't quite get it going. And so they started to ask the question, why? So why can't we eat dinner together as a family? Well, because we get home from work too late. Well, Why? Because at the end of the day, they had too many emails to finish. Well, why? Because they were getting to the office later in the morning than they wanted to, so all their work got pushed back in the day. Well, why were they getting to work late? Well, because the kids uh, took too long to get ready and get out of the house. Well, why do the kids take so long to get ready? Well, because they could dress themselves, but they didn't have their clothes picked out, and so all this time was wasted trying to get outfits together. They realized that the solution to eating dinner together as a family for them was actually to lay the kids' clothes out the night before so they could get out of the house earlier, so they could get home earlier, so they could have dinner together. I mean, do you get this idea? And in a Christian worldview, when you keep asking why about any problem, the lies will ultimately take you back to sin. So, so why did the markets crash in 2008? Well, because there was a, a housing bubble. Well, why was there a housing bubble? Because too many people were given loans that they had no chance of repaying, so that ensured that they would default. Well, why were those loans given in the first place then? Because there was a lot of money to be made in making those loans. Well, why would people choose to make money over doing what was right or, or caring for their neighbor? Well, because at the end of the day, all of us are, are short-sighted, um, don't realize unintended consequences, and we, we just love ourselves more than we love other people. It's right back at that definition of sin. I mean, that's maybe a little oversimplification of the financial crisis, but do you see how this might work? 
if you keep asking why over and over again, that it brings you back to this problem of our sin. The solution to the problem is the forgiveness of sins. Here's why I referred to this earlier as a resurrection story. It's that the resurrection is what accomplishes both. The resurrection and only the resurrection give us hope for our terrible problem of sin and all of our lesser problems, bad legs and everything else that goes wrong in our lives. You see, Jesus was crucified, dead and buried three days. And because he walked out of the tomb alive, he can say to you, your sins are forgiven. But this also raises a question of why did it take Jesus dying on the cross and rising again for God to offer forgiveness? I mean, couldn't God just say, I forgive you? Couldn't he just forgive? The trouble is, is that that's not how forgiveness works. It's not how any of us work. None of us just forgives. Because real forgiveness for real wrongs is always costly. It's always painful. It always requires a certain kind of death. So if a friend betrays you, destroys your reputation, I mean, forgiveness costs everything for you. Forgiveness is expensive. I mean, you can't retaliate against that person. You can no longer, when you forgive them, sit self-righteously in bitterness toward them. But you also can't fix your reputation. You can't get it back. You absorb the cost of that debt. You pay for it by not forcing them to pay for it. There's always a cost of forgiveness. Forgiveness is expensive. If someone were to hurt a loved one, a child, a spouse, a friend, a parent, and really hurt them, what would it take to forgive them? In some ways, does anything cost more than forgiveness? When you've been really hurt, really wrong, offering forgiveness can feel like a sort of death. And Jesus paid the ultimate price for our rebellion. He took what we deserved and he paid with his life. And he longs to say to us, take heart, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. You see, the resurrection means that, that our bad things will turn out for good, that our good things can never be taken away, and that the best is yet to come. If you truly have trusted Jesus, and that you believe that the resurrection has happened, that is the good news of the resurrection for you, that your bad things will turn out for good, that your good things can never be taken away, and that the best is yet to come. I mean, think about this guy in our story. I mean, ultimately, his, his bad things turn out for good. His paralysis leads him and his friends to a place of encountering Jesus, the forgiveness of his sins, and God's glory by the clouds who witnessed it. And his good things can't be taken away. Um, his friends who trust, if they trust Jesus with him, will, will never be taken away. Those friends who are good friends in life will, will be friends for all of eternity. His ability to walk would never be permanently lost again. And, and his best is yet to come because no matter how miserable his life was before, no matter how desperate his life was before he was healed, no matter how good his life on earth was after he was healed, both of those pale in comparison with the offer and the promise of life in a new heavens, in a new earth, fully restored to beauty and perfection. Now I get it. Maybe you believe this story of healing, this story of resurrection is true, uh, and maybe you don't. Um, and, and, and that's okay, because I mean, who wouldn't doubt 
the story at some level. But if there's any possibility that this story is true, if there's any chance that it's true, how do we respond? What do we do about it? Let me offer a few next steps, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. These are three quick things to consider here. First, admit that you need it. I mean, the guy in the story, he's utterly helpless. The only thing that's never in doubt in the fact in this story is how much he needs someone to help him. And we just tend to think because maybe our legs work or or we can solve most of our problems on our own that we somehow are in a different category than this guy, that we're not helpless. But the reality is, is at one level we all are. So sure, you, you may not believe it, you may choose to ignore it, but at least admit that you need help. And not just for the myriad of problems that come in and out of your life, but for your guilt. If there is a God, have you obeyed him? Or have you rebelled against them? And how will he forgive you? See, we don't, we don't argue before an empty bench. Which leads to the second, which is look into it. Don't ignore your need. Don't ignore your longing for meaning that comes when you hear a song like Seven Years or you see a beautiful piece of art, that there's a sense of longing for meaning, for hope, for something more. Don't ignore those senses of longing. This paralytic's friends, in, in sure desperation, take a chance on this miracle work of Jesus simply because maybe, maybe he really can do something about this situation. They went, they looked into it. So what are you doing to look into it? Are you, are you a part of a community that is seeking to find out if this really is true, if Jesus is really who he claimed to be. We seek Jesus together or we don't really seek him at all. We, we need one another to help us in this. And look, I get it. I know church can seem boring. <laughs> Maybe sometimes it legitimately is boring at times. That there's other things you'd like to do on Sunday morning. I get all that. But this place and a community of people following after Jesus, this place is where hope is found. So no matter who you are or what you believe or what you've done, we want you here with us. You can ask questions, raise concerns, express doubts. This is, this is a safe place for that. Look into it. And finally, give it a chance. Try Jesus for a while. Spend some time with us, learning what it is to live life with him. Maybe it won't be worth it, but maybe it will. What do you have to lose? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have sent Jesus as the one who is able to forgive sins and in is in himself on his death and resurrection, the one who provides, makes possible the forgiveness of sins. Lord, whether we have followed you for longer than we can remember, or we're here and we have major questions about all of this, would you make Jesus real to us? Would we treasure him above all else? In Jesus' name, amen.